0: Welcome to an inspirational teaching by Pastor Victor DeMonte, the senior pastor of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. And today we're going to look at the second part how our tears are indicators of what God has called us to do in this world. The title of this message is God, Tears and Us. What's the title? Say it again. What's the title? God tears and us. Now, we all cry. We cry for various reasons. But tears is something that God gave us as a gift. When God created us, he gave us the ability to express our pain, express our emotions through our tears. And all of you will agree with me, or most of you will agree with me, that when we are in those moments of challenge and difficulty when we cry we feel good isn't that true we feel so relieved that's god's design he meant that tears will bring healing to our emotions especially when we are hurt and we are disappointed very often tears are words that our hearts can't speak tears are words that our heart can't speak And today we're going to look at a passage in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1 and 4, how significant a person's prayer and tears changed the mind of God. Come with me, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1 to 4. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face towards the wall, prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I had walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Hezekiah was not going to accept his situation. Hezekiah was not going to take no from God. Even though a prophet said this is what's going to happen, and he was a renowned prophet. Hezekiah would constantly consult this prophet Isaiah, and God will give him direction and God will speak to him. But this time, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and wept before God. He prayed and he wept. Your prayer and your tears matter to God. Say this after me. My prayers. And my tears matter to God. Now look at the result. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. Isn't that amazing? No, God changed his mind rather quickly. Isn't that true? Even before Isaiah could leave, God spoke to Isaiah and says, Go back and tell the leader of my people, Hezekiah, I have heard his prayer and I have seen his tears, surely I will heal you. In Isaiah chapter 38, verse 5 and 6, tells us the impact that Hezekiah's prayer had before God. It says that not only God added 15 more years to his life, but God also promised to deliver him and the city from the hands of the Assyrian king. Isn't it rewarding to pray and trust God in your midst of challenges? How many of us have given up in a battle How many of us are resolved to accept situations rather than taking it before God and saying, God, would you do something? Pour out our heart to God. We're good at crying before other people or even crying in the toilet, but we find it difficult to express that emotion before God and tell God exactly how we feel. Whenever you put your trust in God, your greatest difficulty can turn into your greatest victory. And I'd like you to repeat this after me. When I pray and seek God, my greatest difficulty can turn into the greatest victory. How many of you believe that this morning? And I believe that there are people out here who've had difficult situations, and in you pressing into God, has turned it around to be your greatest victory. There are small battles. Don't back up from the big ones. The small battles prepare you for the big ones. Your greatest difficulty is an opportunity for your greatest victory when you trust God. God took notice of Hezekiah's prayer when he wept. God will take notice when you pray and when you begin to weep before God and express your emotions to him. You see, Hezekiah didn't blame God. Hezekiah trusted in God. What a lesson to learn. It's so easy to ask the question, why is this happening? You never find that in Hezekiah's prayer. There was no room for self-pity. Hezekiah went back to his credentials and says, God, I have followed you. I have obeyed you wholeheartedly. Lord, would you, would you intervene in my situation? And God turned his heart and blessed him. What are you going through this morning? What are your challenges that you are facing? God will hear your prayer. He will see your tears And he will bring answers into your life. He will bring difficulties into victory. The psalmist in his time of affliction says in Psalms 56 verse 8, this is the message translation, you keep track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear entered into your ledger, each ache written in your book. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, you took notice of my pain. You took notice of what I'm going through in life. And not only you took notice, you also collected the tears that I shed in those difficult times. And you recorded them in your ledger. You know, if you want to know how to express emotions, read the Psalms. He's always expressing his emotions to God. No wonder the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. How many of you like to get married to a person who doesn't communicate affections to to one another? How many of you? you like you have a partner who never tells you he loves you, never tells you he cares for you, nothing. You tell him anything, ah, uh, okay. Anyone like that, you'll want to ditch him. I'm not suggesting anything. And stop nudging someone. You know, God is looking for a response. He's emotional. God is compassionate. He is kind. He's abounding in love. And he wants us to respond with emotions to God. Tell him that we love him. Tell him that we, God, we care for the things you care for. He has emotions. He created us with emotions so that we can be compatible. We can identify with one another. Your tears matter to God. Because God has emotions, he feels what we feel. He knows what we're going through, and we must learn to take that before God. There's another famous story in the Bible that we can't bypass in John chapter 11. When Lazarus died, Mary and Martha ran to Jesus. The minute they knew Jesus was around, they ran to him. And it says that Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who came along with her also weeping, Jesus was moved deeply in spirit and was troubled. You see, he was affected by his, her tears, her grief, her sorrow. He was affected by the Jews, the way they responded to Lazarus' death. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, if you never heard me say this before, let me say it. Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to be resurrected from the dead. Isn't that right? He knew he was going to come alive. Why did he weep? He wept because he was moved with the emotions and the tears of Mary and Martha and the Jews that were around. Your tears moves God. Your tears moves God. In Mary and Martha's situation, because they took their pain before God, God turned their greatest sorrow into the greatest moment of rejoicing. Isn't that true? A greatest moment of sorrow was turned into the greatest moment of rejoicing. Do we have faith for that in our lives? That in the midst of your pain, God can bring something beautiful. Now, always say this. In your moments of pain, two ways you can respond. Either become a bitter person or a better person. The choice is ours. The pain is the same. How we respond to it is what matters. Bitter. Or better, Hezekiah wept, Mary met, wept, Martha wept, and they wept about things that mattered to them. It was concerning them and their grief and their pain. But I want to talk to you about a man that the Bible talks about that wept over the things that matter to God. And his name is Nehemiah. When we talk about Nehemiah, the first thing that comes to our mind, rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem... But today we're going to look at the man behind the wall. Nehemiah was a high official in the Persian court of the capital of Susa. He was the most trusted person as the cupbearer. Now a cupbearer's role is that before anything goes to the king, he must taste it, test if it's good or poison or good. genuine before it passes on to the king. A most trusted position. As a cupbearer, he had the responsibility of the well-being of the king. What happened to him? When he heard from his brother that the survivors that were left in captivity were in great distress and reproach, and that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates of the city were burned, this is his response. See, this is what his brother told him about the survivors. Get to the next verse. It says that Nehemiah sat down and wept and moaned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want to ask you a question. When last we have allowed a situation to affect us that much? Nehemiah had no reason to weep. He had no reason to be sorrowful. He had the best food. He had the best clothes. He lived in the best place. Nehemiah never let materialism crush his heart from what he felt for his people. Nehemiah heard from his brother the condition of his people in distress, sat down, wept, moaned over their condition for days in fasting and praying to the God of heaven to do something. Nehemiah understood something of God's heart for God's people. In verse 2, Nehemiah was so burdened for his people that the king notices it and says to him, why is your face sad since you are not sick? He was not allowed to be sad. It was supposed to be good and a good countenance. And this is nothing but sorrow of heart. Look at how Nehemiah responds to the king in verse 3. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? So he didn't say, I'm feeling sad because I never got a promotion. He says, I'm feeling sad. My heart was burdened because of my people. Why shouldn't I be sad? Why shouldn't I fast? Why shouldn't I pray when my people are perishing and in distress? A man that knew how to weep for others. A man that captured God's heart for his people. And he wept before God and he prayed. You know, we're living in a city and we're living in a nation. We can get so hard because of the conditions that we live in. The roads, the potholes, the mess, the the garbage. There are a number of things. That's all around you to squeeze out the little bit of compassion that you have in your heart. But it's time the church sat down, wept over the condition of the people and the place, and said, God, you care for the city. Somebody shout an amen. God cares for the city. He cares for the people in this nation. And we say, God, would you intervene? How many of you with me this morning? There is something that's burning in my heart that's for next year. Okay, I might as well share it. And we're gonna change that poster. In the morning I woke up, and I suddenly saw the condition of a city. I mean, when you go on a good road, you can't help but to praise and thank God. As Soon as you hit that good road, you, it's so noticeable because you've been riding on all bumpy roads the, throughout the time. And I woke up this morning, and I prayed for a better India. And I said, God, we're going to have a better India. We're going to trust you for a better government. We're going to trust you for a better cooperators. We're going to trust you for better roads. Better church, better lives. Somebody shout an amen. And that's the agenda for 2018. This city will change because the church has risen. We will carry our frustrations to God. We will pour out in tears before God. And saying, God, we will not rest. We want to see a better India. It starts with the people. It starts with us. Did you know that the church was never, ever ever meant to be paralyzed by the economics and the situations of the world. We were meant to be world changers, church. We were called and assigned by God to change and influence the world that we will not accept it for what it is, but we will see it for what God wants it to be. It takes a Nehemiah to weep for somebody else. May God raise up Nehemiahs in this church. We will have those half nights of prayer once a month. And I'm looking for the Nehemiahs, and God is looking for the Nehemiahs. Everyone say this, a better India, a better India, a better India, a better India. You don't have the fire in you. A better India. India. We're going to trust God for a a better India. Have a better city, better roads. You think God's not concerned? He is concerned. Because God never wanted this to be the way it is. Come back to our topic. Look at verse 10 in Nehemiah chapter 1. You see how Nehemiah prays? We can learn a few things from his prayer. He never came with a sense of self-pity before God. He said this in verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So what are he saying? God This is your people. How many of you believe this nation is God's nation? These roads are God's roads. Not yet. You see how... How we pray for people, Lord, please, Lord, would you you save them? And Lord, would you have mercy? Hey, stop asking God to have mercy. He is a merciful God. Say, God, you are a merciful God. You are a compassionate God. God, would you demonstrate these are people whom you love? These are people whom you redeem. God, would you intervene in their life? Hear our cry, oh God. You like to pray like that. You come out encouraged, not depressed. If you come out of your closet discouraged, you're not prayed. You only moaned. You made yourself worse. Five times in that verse, Nehemiah repeats you and your. Why? He's only expressing what God felt over the city. He is only expressing the emotions and the, and the frustration of what God would have for his people who are living in that condition. One man's tears changed the history of the people of Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Where are the weeping church today? Where are the people that will shed tears before God and pray for a better India, for a better people, for a better family? Those are the ones that God will use in order to bring forth transformation. Stop accepting life for what it is. Start living life for what God wants it to be. I want to talk to you about another man whose tears. Change the world. Are you ready for this one? His chairs change the world. Very often we don't have a clue of how Jesus prayed. And I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 to 8, talking about the ministry and life of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, in the days when he lived as a human on this earth, when he offered up prayers and supplications, How? With vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was hurt because of his godly fear. You think Jesus didn't weep? He wept. He wept publicly, and he wept more even privately before his father. And he says he didn't just weep. He cried to his father, and he wept bitterly. Do you know what you do in your closet? can affect a nation. Do you know that what you do in a closet can affect the lifestyles of people? Just what you do in your closet. And it says, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I wanted to take you to the place, the most intense place, where Jesus wept. He grieved, and it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. But before we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, looking from the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, there are a sequence of events that Jesus went through before he came to the Garden of Gethsemane and wept there. The first one the Bible records, and this is in all four Gospels, was the Passover. Now the Passover was a big, big festival in Jerusalem. People from all over Israel will come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And now Jesus and his disciples... We're at that Passover feast. It was one of the main festivals of celebration. It was a command in the Bible to celebrate the feast of the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover was a celebration of how God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt that one night. Remember the Passover, the cutting of the lamb, the blood on the doorpost. And that was their moment of victory. And God says you will celebrate it every year to remember your freedom and the victory that I brought to you. And they would celebrate it. Now look at the picture that happens. Jesus and his disciples are at the Passover. Now did you know that every Passover, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs, innocent lambs, will be slaughtered, cut, cut, and the blood will be flowing all from the altar onto the streets. Why? For the sacrifice of the people. That was part of the celebration, the sacrifice of innocent lambs. Jesus, with his disciples, walking down and seeing the bloodshed of these innocent animals, and what's going through Jesus' mind? This is probably the last time he will see those innocent animals being slaughtered and blood flowing. He was going to be that blood. It was his blood now, and he was going to be the lamb. Can you imagine what impact it would have had on Jesus? And he would have thought, from the age of 12, Jesus understood the scriptures. He knew everything that the Bible said about him. He knew what was ahead of him, and that's why he kept speaking about his death. Because when you know you're going to die, you keep talking about it. Because it's not, it's not a joke. It, it weighs on your heart. And now he, his moment is coming near and he sing the Passover, these lambs. The Bible says in the Gospel of John chapter 1, he knew he would be that the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It would no longer be the blood of those innocent animals, but his blood. And he would be the sacrifice. And then it says in verse 14, when the hour had come, he finished the Passover and the hour had come. Drawing near. He sat down with the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I'm crucified. Now, I don't even know how much they understood what Jesus was going through. But this is all in Jesus' mind. This is the emotions that he's going through. And he says, With not just my desire, my fervent desire, It's to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then, in the most dramatic way, he takes the bread, he breaks it and says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, I struggled this week with this passage to capture what Jesus was going through during this time. Having fully understood That that bread was not just bread, it was his very life. It was his body. He breaks it and he says, this is my body. I wonder how many times we break bread. Understand, it's prophetic of what Jesus did. My body has been broken. He takes the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you, shed for everyone. He says, this is what's going to happen. As this bread has been broken, my body was going to be broken. As the wine flows from this cup, wine, my blood will flow from my body, which is be the lamb's sacrifice. From that moment onwards, Jesus goes to the darkest hour of his life, more than what any other person in history could ever go through. And the Bible describes that in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Follow with me. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. It's amazing to see Gethsemane. It's full of olive trees. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. You notice the words that are there in the Bible? What does it capture? It captures his emotions. Don't read the Bible as if it's emotionless, it is packed with God's feelings. And Jesus is, is expressing how deeply troubled and distressed. Why was he distressed? Because the moment has come. It's one thing that you know you're not going to die 10 years from now, but when you're one day before you're dead. It really troubles you more than what has ever troubled you. And Jesus knew the hour has come, not even the day, the hour has come. It's troubled him, it's distressed him because what he read in Isaiah, what he understood of God's word and God's promises was about to become a reality. And he says to them, this is my God. This is how God is. Everything Jesus is. It's an expression of what the Father and the Holy Spirit is. And he says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Even to that, this is Jesus. Stay here and watch. He then goes a little further, falls on the ground. Why does he fall on the ground? He didn't trip over a stone. He fell on the ground in utter despair, emotionally Physically, psychologically, all he could do was just throw himself. He didn't have the strength, the human strength to carry on. Anyone been in that place before? You just can't get up and do anything. You, you just collapse. Jesus fell to the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He says, God, this hour was more difficult than what I thought. The hour will pass from him. You know, when you read about the Bible saying the cup, it was not a physical cup. It was a metaphor of what he had to embrace. And Jesus was saying, I don't want to embrace that cup. What was that cup? All the suffering, your suffering, my suffering, suffering of this world, all the sorrow, all the grief, all the sickness that mankind would have ever experienced would now be on him who would want to be part of that cup embrace it embrace the suffering embrace that sorrow and I believe with every ounce of his emotions in verse 36 he said Abba, Father all things are possible for you take this cup away from me nevertheless not what I will but what you will his humanity did not want to embrace the cup because for the very very first time in his entire existence in his entire life he would become sin he would become a curse a person who never knew sin once he embraces that he becomes sin he becomes curse sorrow would no longer become an emotion sorrow would become a person because the Bible describes Jesus as a man of sorrows. Sorrow and pain for the first time became a person. Sin became a person. He became sin. And you read Isaiah 53 verse 4. He says he was a man of sorrows and pain. Who born, who had borne our griefs and sickness. And I looked up the meaning of the word bone. It means transported. In other words. Every grief, every sorrow that's common to mankind, every sickness, every disease, every suffering, every abuse. You think God does not know what it is to be sexually and physically abused? He knew everything of what it is to be abused. He hung naked on that cross. No loincloth, absolutely naked. Men, women, and children looked on his nakedness. Why? He embraced the cup. He embraced it. He stood in your place, in my place. He stood in the place of this world and became the man of sorrows. He became the man of grief. He became the man. It was personified. He became part of him. It was so intense of what he embraced that it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly so hard with every ounce of his emotions, that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on that ground. One man's tears and one man's blood changed the history of this world. It's changed your life and it's changed my life. Jesus knew the Father had sent him into this world, which was not what they intended it to be. He knew it. He was there from the beginning. And he knew that God had a better plan for the human race. God had a better plan for the world that we live in. And so when he stepped into this world, he knew that the Father, he, and the Holy Spirit was not the world that God intended. And I wonder that every time he saw a sick person, every time he saw someone suffering, his mind shot back at the Garden of Eden to his Father and the Holy Spirit and would have said, Father, this was not what we wanted. This is not how we intended man to live. So corrupt, so bound, so oppressed by the enemy. And he set people free. When you capture God's heart, you will be agents of God that will set people free. Because God has an immense love and compassion to see this world restored. Adam and Eve destroyed God's dream which he had for the human race. One act of rebellion brought the downfall of the human race. One act of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, not my will but yours, brought hope to our nation. I stood there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I said, from this place, hope sprang to the rest of the world. From this place, tears flowed that touched the hearts of millions. From that one place, life sprang instead of death. For the very first time, there was hope in a nation which was hopeless. It brought the end of animal sacrifice. Put an end to bloodshed so that now we will live our life receiving life and giving life, receiving life, and giving life. Jesus knew that his death meant that every person in this world will have an opportunity to be reconciled back to God. Every person in this world will have an opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins. I'm not saying ask for forgiveness of sins. I'm not talking about doing anything for forgiveness of sins. He did it all so that we can receive the forgiveness of sins. And we can be free from the hold of the enemy. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples and he said to them, in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19, Go then and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know how many times I read that verse? You know how many times I looked at it and we even quoted it so casually? but the first time this week I understood that that verse wasn't a command it was the burden that Jesus came into this world with and that's why Jesus said go into all the world it's his burden it's what he bled for it's what he shed tears for it's what he agonized for can we carry something of god's emotions this morning's message yes it's important to know that God feels what we feel. But the more relevant question for us this morning, are we willing to feel what God feels? Are we willing to embrace what God embraced? For the change of a nation, for the rising up of hope, for the freedom of life, are we willing to embrace that? And that's why the Bible tells us, Jesus says, go to all the world, Start making disciples. It's a way to bring back this world into godly order. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness. But he is long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any would perish. But all will come to repentance. And I believe that his blood is still speaking. His tears are still flowing for nations to come back to God. Nations to come back to God. I read in the newspaper. I don't know whether I shared this the last time. When we were in South Africa, it told me this. The government has passed a law that at the age of 13, children must find out their sexuality and indulge in sex. At the age of 13, it's a law. So if anyone is caught beyond 13 having sexual relationship, it's no longer a crime. And in recent last week's note news, Europe has come up with the same law. In Europe or France, France came up with the law. 13 is an adult where they could have sexual pleasures or indulge in any sexual activity. Can you imagine what this world is coming through? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what God's heart is when He looks down on this world? For a moment this morning, let's forget about our pain. Let's leave aside our emotions, probably for the first time. Start feeling what God feels. When you feel what God feels, not only you have hope for yourself, you have hope for what other people have. What is our response? Are we going to sit down like Nehemiah, weep over the condition of what's happening in our world, and trust God that God will intervene? Or would we be complacent in our heart and say, I'm not doing it, just worried about our own lives? How we respond is what matters. Thank you for listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.